Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is the most interesting people I know. Conversations on science, ethics, and politics. My guest today is Eric Levitz. Eric is a political analyst and associate editor at New York Magazine, where he writes an alarming number of good takes on a huge range of topics. I think Eric's columns are the rare combination of well-written and well-argued. I don't know of any political columnists who are more empirically grounded, and I feel substantially better informed having read him. On today's episode, we cover the danger of moderation in extraordinary times, the climate crisis and the Green New Deal, how our identities inform our political choices, the time-honored Republican strategy of stoking racial fears to cling to power, why Democrats should wage a vicious class war in 2020, the fallacy of thinking about politics along one dimension, the surprising popularity of some radical left positions, the mind-numbing Democratic debates, how Biden could run away with the whole thing, Bernie's decision to lean into the Democratic Socialist label, how Eric would describe his job, bias and the myth of objectivity in political writing, and Eric's hottest takes. Here is Eric Levitz. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's just start off with a, a piece you wrote. You said that uh, moderate Democrats' delusions of prudence will kill us all. So what's your problem with moderation? Uh, yeah, so I guess in, in the specific context of that article, I was responding to a New York Times opinion piece that was uh, from a, a former aide to, I believe, a Senator Bob Kerry. Um, He's a moderate senator, right? Who was, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> but basically it, his argument was that uh, that these days rhetoric on both the left and the right is extremely hyperbolic. Everything is a huge crisis, uh, whereas the, the real virtue of prudence is recognizing when you're living in extraordinary times and when you're living in ordinary times and, and calibrating your politics to the demands of the moment. Um, and he argues that Abraham Lincoln uh, did this brilliantly. Um, and the, the whole article doesn't make a whole lot of sense because he, he makes this case that, that Lincoln was the exemplar of recognizing when times demanded radicalism and when they did not by, by suggesting that in the 1830s, uh, when, when Lincoln himself gave a speech outlining his, his notion of prudence, that that was a moment where there was not a, a crisis in the United States, um, despite the fact that there were something like a million people being treated as property and rape beaten at will, um, which raises questions about what one considers in political emergency. Um, but anyhow, uh, the, from there, I the, the broader and I guess more relevant point that you're probably getting at is just that in, in the context of the climate crisis with what we are learning about what we have already done um, to the planet uh, and are continuing to do, the the ideological spectrum um, that has heretofore existed in Washington uh, is really misaligned with what the, the science is telling us is a prudent course of action. Mm -hmm. um, so we're we're in a situation where they really you know as your audience is surely well aware right that the UN has suggested that we've got 12 years to at all plausibly try to uh, keep temperature uh, rise from exceeding uh, I believe is that one Three 12 degrees, years 1.5 1. 1. or two yeah, um, yeah. but uh, at which point there will be like irreparable harm when like the permafrost right. I mean it's a little or... bit like like we're we're 
we don't actually have the precision, I don't believe, in, in the science to actually like draw a line like you go a degree, a, a mill a degree, whatever it is above this, and then suddenly everything. I mean, we're, we're, we're already pretty screwed, but it depends on how screwed we're going to be. And, and the sooner that we get a handle on the emissions, the, the better off we're going to be. Yeah. Um, and, and in this context, and also in this really bizarre fiscal environment that the people who rule us who came of age during the stagflation crisis still haven't really internalized, where we've got uh, record federal deficits, but also, you know, near zero interest rates can borrow money for basically nothing. There's an insatiable demand for U.S. Treasuries. Uh, it, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's insane to not be the fact that we are not currently spending just trillions of dollars, you know, even if even if we can't agree on the taxes, fine, let let the rich keep their low tax rates while Trump is in office. But let's just start spending trillions of dollars uh, in investing in green infrastructure, carbon capture. There, there's really it, it's insane what we're doing and and what is rational uh, will get coded in, in in many parts of our, uh, you know very serious corners of, of the beltway as insane. So yeah, I mean, the whole idea of moderation or prudence is kind of predicated on things being like sustainable or okay, which, you know, that was maybe feasible at like one point in time when the climate crisis was not as severe or not as well known, or when like more people were doing okay. But one of the pieces that this guy makes in his writing is that like the decay of the middle class has been like a gradual process taking place over decades. And so the response to it can't be dramatic, which makes approximately no sense to me. Yeah, yeah. He, he writes that, you know, people are saying that there's this crisis uh, of the middle class, but in fact, if you look, middle class uh, incomes have been eroding for decades very slowly, so this is not an emergency, it is a, which, which just doesn't make logical sense, right? Something can be happening gradually and then reach an inflection point or a point of crisis, um, you know, a door can be hanging off its hinge for a long time and slowly and then there's a moment where it breaks it, it, it doesn't make any sense really yeah yeah and i think moderation you hear the calls for moderation usually from people who are pretty comfortable uh, ones who aren't really being affected by the things that are affecting a lot of other people and it's hard to point to a time where like things were really okay for like the vast majority of people in this country yeah no i mean i think definitely one sense of uh how urgent social problems are is, is obviously influenced by one's position in the social order. At the same time, I do think that climate um, poses unique challenges because it is, we, we can see in opinion polls that it's not just the, the wealthy who uh, are complacent about climate because of the nature of the problem, because of how um, gradual it is and how uh, detached it is from, from ordinary people's lives, arguably the professional middle class, the, the more comfortable segments of the, the country may actually take climate more seriously than, than someone who is worried about, you know, just keeping, making rent this month, paying for their child's insulin. The abstract threat of ecological catastrophe just doesn't rank very high in their, their list of priorities. Um, and it's hard to, it's just, it's, it's just a very, very difficult problem because one, once it becomes real to people, there's there's nothing you can do about their specific concerns. So at some point, the large swaths of the Midwest are going to, I mean, it's already happening, but, but even more dramatically, going to become uh, 
non-viable agriculturally and entire local economies you know are going to be really decimated but but at that point there will be demand for a policy response but the government can't make the soil you know work again they I mean by then that the temperature changes already and so with climate everything once it registers the best that we can offer is well we're going to you know someone else is going to we can prevent someone else from experiencing maybe a similar crisis but but you who are now currently actually in your concrete life affected by this are fucked yeah. um anyway it's just a it's a it's a awful awful problem for um for for human beings and the political economies that we've created to uh uh there's just a big mismatch um yeah it seems like this problem where it's just uniquely positioned to be really really bad and really hard for us as a species to deal with it because it's so gradual it's abstract there's very strong material interests of a group of people that are very powerful to downplay or deny its effects um, in the first place and it seems like this has been fairly effective and then in the it's United transnational it's, yeah, it's, it's global and it requires a global response when we don't have a very well-developed global consciousness or global governance i mean from what i understand you know the the game is going to be won and lost in the developing countries uh, and whether or not they find a way to industrialize in a less carbon intensive manner than we have and it's hard to see how that happens unless uh, the governments of the nations that have benefited from fossil fuel-led development are willing to uh, make it worth their while by providing them with, uh, you, you know, by developing renewable technologies and then not guarding our IP or intellectual property on them, but giving them away mm. uh, by by paying them not to burn fossil fuels. And that requires, you know, uh, large amounts. It requires the U.S. Congress to vote to give uh, money to foreigners, um, which, which as we can see, uh, you know, based on the kinds of themes that uh, Donald Trump used to get elected and just generally what we know about how foreign aid polls as a concept is, is, a, is a reach for where we are currently. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a political non-starter in a lot of these developing countries as well, right? Because you've got this situation where the United States and Western Europe have uh, relied on carbon to develop their economies and become very wealthy. Um, and then just as other countries start to do the same, uh, they're told, no, you're not allowed to do that. Like, you're going to destroy the world, even though, like, we're ultimately dealing with most of the legacy emissions from the United States and Western Europe because we developed so early. Yeah, absolutely. It's an impossible sell for those governments unless we give them, if we can give them a way to, hey, you get to industrialize. And unlike us, uh, you don't have to deal with these elevated cancer rates that breathing, uh, you know, coal smoke uh comes with i mean then then you have a proposition that's uh that's viable there is you know obviously as we've seen like organic demand does arise uh in china when when you are trying to industrialize through dirty energy the not climate effects but just environmental air quality effects does create a demand for people would like a different form of energy if possible so if we, if we can you know scale up renewable and make it viable for them cost-wise to to do that and to build their uh infrastructures around that technology then we've we've got something if we don't have that to offer then you know it's it, it'll be a non-starter yeah 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 and i think like there's this sort of informed critique of like the green new deal saying like you know the united states is responsible for i think less than 10 percent of global emissions at this point um 
and we've peaked from like a per capita emission standpoint. But we're also uniquely positioned as the world's largest economy and the most advanced technological society on the planet to make green technologies available for cheaper just through massive levels of investment, right? And you could just, without even changing uh, the economic system around the world, uh, make green energy just cheaper than coal, than oil, than whatever else people are using. And the market will just like lead to that solution. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I'm not well versed enough in exactly like how how easy it'll be to to get the the prices, you know, to, to get to the point where it is um, cheaper. Uh, but but certainly, like I said before, it's just it's just a no brainer to throw throw whatever we have at the problem um, and and to be putting, you know, that there's if you think about the amount of capital and uh, you know. Uh, Intellectual capability that is is currently focused on figuring out how to do labor ar- labor arbitrage and like meal delivery or you know we, we're not we're not putting our resources uh, uh, we're not bringing our resources our extraordinary resources to bear on the on the problems that need solving um, and yeah I think that certainly uh, should be a major project should be a major priority for. Progressives and, and one of the more doable ones, I think, as far as if you look at the whole smorgasbord of climate policies, um, I think the thing that probably has the best chance of passing the U.S. Senate within the next five to ten years is just throwing a ton of money at the problem mm. um, and giving everybody in every state a little bit of pork to spend on some climate-themed thing. That seems like that's going to be easier to get than a carbon tax, uh, which we probably need as well. But but anyway, I think that that's really, I think that's what's viable, especially uh, if Democrats preside over a recession. Um, and so I think that really developing and, and fine-tuning, uh, making sure that we spend that money wisely, um, you know, to the extent that there are left-wing wonks looking for something to do, I think that's a major project. Yeah, I mean, so what are your thoughts on the Green New Deal as it stands right now? Um, I think it's, it's, it's good. Um, uh, I think it's hard to, there are different definitions of what the Green New Deal is, the competing ones that are floating around. Um, so it's hard to have a very firm opinion on on it, other than you know, if we take it to mean uh, a strategy for addressing the climate crisis, that um, that foregrounds concerns about a just transition for those currently employed in the fossil fuel economy, and that um, insists that we cannot uh, reshape our energy economy without reshaping the broader economy, and so we need to make uh, value judgments about what we want the new economy to look like and that it is inescapably going to be an ideological project. Uh, I, I agree with, with all of that. Um, I think that some factions in the Green New Deal coalition are more hostile to nuclear power and to carbon capture um, than I am. 
I think that we need an all of the above um, on on that front. But uh, but yeah, overall, I, I think it's uh, been a, a tremendously useful project. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of the criticism of it is like kind of contradictory, where it's like, well, they don't really know what they want, but what they want also is like insane and unworkable and will bankrupt the country. Yeah, and it's like you can't make both of those arguments. Yeah, I, I, I think that's, I mean, to the extent that people were, were saying that, that you could do uh, the, the Green New Deal plus Medicare for all um, without raising taxes, then I, I think that's not right. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it's a, it was a resolution. It was not a piece of legislation, and it is pretty um pretty open about being a, you know here a set of of goals and we want to develop the uh, the details um and so i think that the, there was a reflexive hostility that 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 wasn't very um very sound and there was also i think i think there's a trouble that, that certain centrist um analysts have with this basic brute fact that the stuff that, that was most sort of ideologically progressive about the Green New Deal, the job guarantee aspect, the um, the, the sort of unionization reform of labor law, all the stuff that, that got rolled into it where people are saying, you know, well, if you bring that into it, you're, you're making this divisive, you're bringing in these other partisan issues, but just the the New Deal stuff is actually a bit more popular than the green stuff, like the the wonky. I don't want to use that derisively, but but the the the, the you know the carbon tax, the the making fossil fuel consumption more expensive, that's way more toxic, like than the stuff that that you know you're arguing is extraneous, um, and and so yeah, just the, just the fundamental problem that. That there is no easy bipartisan solution on offer, you know, no politically viable uh, one on offer, and so it's a, it's a choice between between different uh, difficult propositions um, is something that I think some parts of the commentariat have trouble um, internalizing. Yeah, I think a positive agenda is essential to making it politically viable, right? You know, a carbon tax has been long agreed on by economists as like a, a very good solution to you know uh, carbon emissions and and making them more expensive and thus making the market point towards you know greener solutions but it doesn't really benefit anybody materially enough and it doesn't tie into a story around justice in a way that like mobilizes the kind of mass movement that you need to overcome the vested interests of like the Koch brothers and other like uh, fossil fuel companies yeah yeah I think that that's that, that, that's a that's a theory of change anyway. Yeah. 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 And who knows if it if it will work? But the solutions we've had thus far haven't. So. Yeah. I mean, cap and trade failed, and it wouldn't have been enough anyway. And so, yeah, I think that you know, if someone's got a better plan, they can put it forward. But we haven't really seen a a more uh, plausible paradigm than than certain versions anyway of the Green New Deal. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so the other side of this uh, 
reason why you think moderation is a threat is the unique threat of the Republican Party as it exists right now. And you also wrote a piece on tribalism, uh, arguing that tribalism is less of a threat to democracy than the conservative movement itself. Um, and I think a lot of the people listening to this might be big believers that like tribalism explains, uh, you know, most of our politics and like political identity is really important in how people vote. Um, and it takes maybe more, they take a more agnostic view on like which party is responsible for this. So what's the core argument there? Yeah, so the, I mean, definitely identity, cultural, culture war, conflict, race, these are immensely uh, important, the most salient factors in American politics right now. We, you know, it, it's, it is the case that the Republican Party is still um, implementing uh, a the agenda of, of the most reactionary elements of capital, uh, issues of, of class power and economics still structure policy conflict between the two parties where the Democrats um, are accountable to a labor constituency uh, that Republicans largely aren't, and so they have a slightly different, um, not slightly, you know, I, I, they have a, a significantly different um, approach to uh, implementing the same, you know, broad economic system, but but very meaningfully different in in terms of you know tens of thousands of people are probably dead now that wouldn't have been dead if. John Roberts and the other Supreme Court justices had not given Republican state governments the power to deny people the Medicaid expansion. So there, there are real stakes here. Um, but uh, all that said, in terms of the stakes of, of elections still being very much about class politics, the the actual way that the politics is understood and that partisan conflict is currently uh, the way the way that politics is polarized right now is not along lines of class. It's along lines of uh, social identity, which are heavily correlated with um, this urban-rural divide. I mean, you can look at these maps, and it's not just the coasts versus the middle. It's, it's uh, just any part of the country. Look at the downtown area. Once you go over a certain density, it starts to turn blue. Once you go under that density, it starts to turn Red, um, and this is a index of you know um, a conception of American identity that is centered on uh, white Christianity um, and, and uh, rural dwelling, and, and then there's a you know the cosmopolitan, multiracial, civic uh, Americanism um, that you know lionizes that poem on the Statue of Liberty. Um, and, you know, uh, perhaps in some ways that are benign, in some ways that are not, uh, you know, takes a kind of, uh, views the American story and American history through rose-colored glasses. Often, it seems to me in, in certain ways the, the most reactionary parts of the right sometimes have a, um, are more clear-eyed about certain aspects of American history than than arguably some sort of Cold War centrist liberals are. Um, but uh, but 
you have to ask how how did we get to the point where politics is polarized like this and and who benefits from the fact that the dividing question um in in many american elections is you know whether it is okay for nfl players to kneel during the national anthem uh or whether the migrants that i see on fox news are a actual threat to me and my family's well-being into the future of my country um and my argument is that that we we more or less know i mean obviously no one has total control over how politics evolves but it just is the case that uh the southern strategy was a thing right that the republican party in uh the the post-war period realized at some point that you know if american politics is fought um along lines of class identity if if the defining divide is about whether you know who who should have more power in the economy ordinary workers or uh you know business owners that that's probably not going to be the best playing field for them uh, given their um greater reliance on the patronage of you know libertarian business owners uh with very unpopular views on what the government's uh, role should be um whereas uh, if it is structured on long lines where political conflict is centered on the question of you know uh should your kids um should your white children be bused to schools with uh, african american children um if it if it's centered on along lines of uh racial identity and um the white backlash politics and racial grievances that uh that the passage of the civil rights movement organically stimulated in um in white much of white america and i don't want to for a minute suggest that uh that that it took you know that richard nixon needed to inform you know uh white americans that they did not want uh or resented uh the increasing assertiveness of african americans in in their uh african american movements in in their quest for civic and economic equality obviously there was an organic base for this reactionary uh drift but nonetheless there was a conscious decision among uh people like Kevin Phillips uh the Nixon advisor and and Lee Hotwater these republican operatives uh that we can heighten the salience of these racial issues we can put them at the center of politics and then the party that is more reliant on the votes of african americans the party that will have more trouble triangulating away from it um is going to be at a disadvantage and we're going to be at an advantage and so beginning uh you know with with Goldwater um in 1964 and then with Nixon um through Reagan who infamously launched his campaign in in uh Philadelphia Mississippi where the civil rights workers were killed and and launched it with a speech about states rights to the 90s where Rush Limbaugh takes off and Fox News um they now have a propaganda apparatus that works relentlessly every night you can you know let me just turn on your television and you i don't think you can watch fox news for an evening and not come away 
thinking the conservative movement really wants to increase the salience of race in American politics and really wants to increase the salience of culture war divides. Um, so I do think that, you know, as much as uh, Tucker Carlson and, and these other other folks will accuse the left of, of trying to um, center our politics on uh, racial identity and on these divisive social issues, the driver of that has been always the conservative movement and, you know, democratic consultants um, in some cases in sort of uh, infamous compromises have really, really tried to move race off the front. I mean, I mean, a lot of the worst things that Bill Clinton did were aimed at trying to uh, diffuse that conflict, to distance himself from Jesse Jackson, from Sister Soldier, from the demands within his own coalition um, to really represent uh, the frustrated ambitions uh, of African Americans for equality. So, yeah, basically, if, if you, long story short, if you uh, are troubled by the centrality of culture war conflict in our politics today, it is not, you know, something that, that both parties have equal culpability for. It is fundamentally uh, a reactionary project, you know, that exists fundamentally because Donald Trump is not going to win that election if he's campaigning on it should be easier for corporations to poison your children. I want to make it so that it is less expensive for them to produce their chemicals uh, at the cost of increasing your cancer rates. You know, I want to increase the after-tax income of the people who have, uh, you know, collected, who, who currently own as much as 90%, uh, the bottom 90% of American households. They're not going to win elections on these things. Um, and so they need, fundamentally, to have American politics not structured in, in a high-minded argument between what are our priorities as a, 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 a polis, that it needs to be about a cultural war grievance or else they, they can't win. Yeah, yeah. As you were saying that, I, I was remembering uh, in Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, she discusses this uh, racial bargain that was made you know, back when America was still colonies. And it was this idea that you know, there was actually solidarity, some solidarity between um, poor blacks and poor whites in, in the South in particular. And there was this conscious strategy to um, divide the, the blacks and the whites and, and um, poor white people would like accept this status of being like, well, at least we're not like as bad off as, as the you know, poor African-Americans. And um, this has kind of just persisted throughout American history and, and manifested in different ways and just been this like constant strain. And, and I think that's one of the things that uh, is so really makes the right afraid uh, is somebody who can transcend that. And uh, I was just watching uh, videos of Fred Hampton speaking last night, and he was a leader of the Black Panthers who was uh, assassinated by the Chicago police with the assistance of the FBI when he was 21 years old. And the speech I was watching was him talking about uh, t talking to a room full of uh, white supporters, but also you know black supporters, and talking about the need to unify and uh, not create like respond to capitalism with black capitalism, but respond with democratic socialism. And there's a reason he was a threat, and there was a reason he was killed. Yeah, yeah, I think that um, I think that's absolutely, absolutely right. I, I think that there is that the white supremacy is, among other things, you know, an elite project um, 
but it, it also does have you know I mean its its efficacy reflects the this fundamental human desire um, for status and to distinguish oneself uh, to to qualify for you know for prestige for for membership um, and and in something larger than oneself and the value of that membership being contingent on on some not qualifying for it and you see in some sociological work you know this concept of last place aversion that people would rather have potentially less absolute uh, wealth so long as they know that they aren't at the bottom of the mm. hierarchy um, and so so yeah, so I, I think that it uh, it is the case. In my opinion, I, I don't. I'm not crazy about this. There's a certain strain of of um, left wing commentary that uh, that treats the idea that that white working class voters are are voting against their their interests um, uh, as misguided because you know you're not giving them agency that who are you to say what their interests are and you know they are making the choice to prioritize and i i'm not crazy about that because it leads to a relativism that i don't think is fundamentally um an egalitarian or or or, or left-wing concept like i think that people if we are going to say that that no, it actually can be in, in someone's objective or or, or, in, or in someone's enlightened interest mm -hmm. to prioritize um, having a president who makes black people feel like shit over one who is going to help them have more power in their workplace, have health care when they're sick, um, then, then I, 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 I don't know, then there's no possibility of a universal project uh, or, or of you know a moral universalism like i i think we have to say that no uh you know we are all human beings we have common interests fundamentally and uh it is it is not in anyone's interest uh you know in not in anyone's enlightened interest to to make that calculation yeah yeah that's interesting um and and you're touching on this but you also wrote another piece i i, I love these headlines but you said that the pragmatic approach for Democrats in 2020 is to wage a vicious class war. Um, what were you basing that on? So that was written off of um, the political scientist Spencer Piston's book, Class Attitudes in America, in which he argues that um, that there is more class consciousness in the American electorate than, than many political observers and pundits um, give American voters credit for. His work is built off of the original insight and it came from the 2008 American National Election Studies survey. They have, they didn't, in that survey, um, ask about Americans' class attitudes. You know, one of his observations is that we do, you know, over time, one, one fundamental aspect to public opinion that it doesn't get talked about a lot is that you know what the public's views are um, and how what we understand the public to believe is is very much dependent on the questions we choose to ask um, so in recent years there's been the development of things like the racial resentment battery where we have um, realized that that people's 
attitudes towards towards the racial entitlement towards the the their understanding of, of why it is that African Americans uh, account for such a disproportionate share of uh, the underclass in this country. Um, that these things are actually really politically meaningful. That they correlate very strongly with certain types of political behavior and other and other things. So we've started to ask about them more. But uh, as of 2008, we didn't have we weren't asking in these this you know gold star. Uh, election survey about class resentment. But when he looked in, they have at the end of the, the studies just an open-ended section where they invite voters, um, a smaller sample of voters than the, the total respondents, um, to just say in their own words, you know, uh, what do they like about each major party, what do they like about each major candidate or dislike about them. Um, and he found looking at this that, that uh, a significant um, number of respondents mentioned uh, expressed resentment of the rich uh, or concern for the poor, so in justifying either why they didn't like John McCain or didn't like the Republican Party or did like Obama or did like the Democrats. It was, you know, uh, Republicans, they only care about the rich. Um, you know, Democrats, you know, they, they, they care about the poor. Um, and so from that, he decided, uh, you know, to come 2012, he was able to get some questions about resentment of the rich and resentment of the poor into um, these national surveys, and specifically, again, about resentment uh, uh, of these groups, not about inequality, because that was the other thing that he took away from the open-ended, was that almost no one brought up inequality, um, this abstraction, hmm. uh, concerned about concerns about the distribution of income. Uh, it really is, there's a, there's a lot of political science research at this point that, you know, really suggests that identity, political identity, identity, who you understand yourself to be, who you understand your group to be, and who you understand them to be, who you understand the other group to be, is really fundamental for almost all voters. Um, but this has often been taken to mean that, oh, class doesn't pay that, play that big a role in American elections because um, if you just look at income, there is a correlation between high income and Republican voting, but it's not—it's not strong. And it's getting weaker, um, right? Whereas the the correlations with race and with other, but uh, but what what Piston does is is finds that you know, um, what your income is doesn't necessarily tell us how you identify in your class identity to the extent that do you resent. Do you feel like the the people above you in the economic hierarchy are getting away with murder? Hmm. There are plenty of professional class people who, you know, uh, after 2008, and, you know, if they didn't work in finance and they saw that their savings just got gambled away by these people who make salaries that, you know, are several multiples of their own, um, they're pretty pissed at the rich. You know, uh, even though their incomes in the grand scheme of things are are what we would describe as high, um, so anyhow, uh, what he found in 2012 was that uh, one's attitude towards the rich or the poor, controlling for uh, all other variables, was actually predictive of supporting Barack Obama over Mitt Romney. If you if you evinced uh, under his scale uh, resentment of the rich, feeling that the, the the rich get more than they deserve, the government does is too deferential to their interests, you were significantly more likely to vote for Barack Obama. 
2016 that disappears um, in the Clinton-Trump race, uh, which, you know, and this sort of connects a bit to the the tribalism thing we were talking about before, that um, in, in 2012, uh, Romney and Obama both kind of mutually agreed to run a campaign um, about the role of the government in the economy. You know, you didn't, uh, we built that, right, versus uh, Obama's themes more on inequality and on, you know, saving Detroit, bailing out the automakers. Um, they agreed to run a class campaign. Uh, and Republicans nominated a, you know, private equity guru who seems like the kind of person who fired your dad or, you know. Um, in 2016, both Hillary and Trump agreed to have a fight about um, about who we are, uh, what it means to be American. Are we stronger together? Does our diversity make us strong? Or uh, are we um, strong when we get back to what made us great in the past and to this um, implicitly, sometimes explicitly, uh, you know, race-based understanding of, of what true Americanism, Americanness looks like. Um, Clinton's strategy uh, was enough, worked perfectly well if we lived in a, you know, country that determined its leaders through pure uh, democracy. She got more votes. But it does seem to be the case that there are cross-pressured voters in Michigan, you know, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, for whom this was not an ideal strategy, right? Voters who lean right on immigration, lean left on certain pocketbook issues, or if we want to put this back in the identity frame, you know, uh, resent the rich and resent immigrants. Mm. Um, and uh, so I think that the declining salience of class in that campaign is is understandable and also, um, in hindsight, probably regrettable. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so you also, this kind of suggests that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders' campaigns would be the best strategy, regardless of popularity of individual candidates, because they're framing us more of like a us versus them, like a little guy versus a big guy. Yeah, I, I wanted to um, to make that case to 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 represent that argument because I think that it is so reflexively assumed that um, at least in certain corners of the the punditocracy that you know uh, there's some very simple relationship between how far left you are and um, how electable you are, and I don't think that that's that's the case. Um, it sort of assumes as like one dimension of American politics, like left to right. Right. And to win, you have to not go too far left or you'll lose too many moderate swing voters. Right. But you know, people care about many more things than just like that one dimension. Yeah. I think that there are other variables. I don't, um, I'm not going to say that I know for sure that, uh, you know, that Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren would absolutely win a higher share of electoral college votes than Joe Biden, at least if, if his brain doesn't completely melt. <laughs> um, you know, because uh, there are other things. I mean, you know, Biden, the, again, my argument is that I think that policy using really ambitious policies uh, to tell a clear story about class conflict potentially can make make it more salient and resonant. And someone like Sanders just um, you know, I, I don't know. We can debate the 
politics of identifying as a, a socialist or describing his program as socialist. But it does bait the right into having an argument about economics when it, it's usually better off not doing that. Um, but uh, at the same time, I don't think we have clear evidence that policy details that register that much, um, such that if Joe Biden chose in the general election to just talk a lot about the middle class um, and did so while not taking some of the more controversial positions, cultural work, the very important <laughs> positions, but but ones that uh, you know don't necessarily play well with this you know bizarre eight percent or whatever it is of the electorate who can't figure out what team they're on still um, you know in these 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 states such as decriminalizing border crossing which you know is actually a really technical issue that is not that radical at all but mm -hmm. it sounds I mean you you say decriminalizing legal border crossing and even some liberals will say you're saying open borders um, and you know, letting uh, letting felons vote—it's um, a very righteous and very unpopular idea. Um, so, I don't think that there is any clear correlation between how far left you are in any particular issue and, and how uh, electable you are. But I, I do think it's the case that there are some progressive ideas that are very popular, that are very radical and very popular. You know, such as allowing workers to elect portions of the corporate board, uh, allowing workers to to own uh, parts of the firm, a lot of stuff inside the firm. Of you know, when you set up the identity as, do you identify more with workers or with bosses? You're playing on majoritarian terrain. Similarly, one of my my favorite polls was from in the British context, was when. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, after the Grenfell Tower fire, proposed um, just seizing the uh, luxury apartments of absentee, uh, you know, condo owners in London, giving it giving it to the victims of the Grenfell. And that's a ideologically, if you plot that an ideological spectrum, you're talking about expropriation <laughs> and giving it to uh, you, you know poor people. I mean, this is a massive violation of property rights. It is. It is. You know. Socialist, mm -hmm. um, and it's poll like sixty percent because you're asking people, do you care more about the Russian oligarchs who are buying up, uh, you know, downtown and leaving these empty condos that are also driving up your rent, or do you care more about the victims of a fire? Mm. You know, so there are lots of really progressive policies that that do work electorally, and then there are ones where the left is taking um, taking on the cause of. Uh, Taking on the very important uh, goals of minority constituencies or, or marginalized ones, uh, where it's not necessarily a majoritarian issue, such as reparations, for example. Um, and so, if you have a left-wing candidate who just adopts the left position on every issue across the board and talks about all of them loudly, um, then you probably do end up. There's a decent chance, anyway, that you end up uh, with with a candidate who is um, going to have a narrower margin of victory, you know, than than possibly a, a more careful than a candidate who is just doing what uh, what consultants tell them to. Yeah.
Uh, it's funny that the story, I didn't know the story about the uh, Corbin suggesting expropriating these apartments. Yep. And as I've moved, you know, to the left, I, I've come to appreciate how many, how so many very intuitive ideas uh, end up becoming like true again if you move far enough left. So like if you're walking around the streets of New York and you're have never seen homelessness before, you're like, oh, like, why are these people homeless? It's like, oh, well, it's like, you know, we don't know how to solve this problem, um, whatever. But it's like, well, aren't there people that have like eight homes? It's like, well, yeah, but like, it's not like related, you know, it's not like we can just give them the homes. And then the left possession might just be like, no, you can. <laughs> and the reason some people don't have enough is because others have way too much. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that that's, I think that certainly the, the distribute, I mean, we obviously, we, we have enough wealth as a society, you know, for everyone to live well. Uh, if we shared the passive income that, you know, our collective assets generate and that you know i mean there's a lot of descendants of slave owners who are living well off of capital that was first formed on plantations fundamentally um and are still basically in some sense collecting returns on the capital that was created there uh while the you know the grand great great whatever the the descendants of slaves are you know uh, have negative net worths or in debt are uh, you know in uh, highly segregated highly um, under resourced environmentally uh, you know disadvantaged communities and and not getting any cut of the, those those passive that passive capital accumulation that um, you know to the extent that anybody is entitled to it you know maybe they are um, uh, at the very least, it seem, would seem a greater entitlement than, than the people who are currently commandeering those gains. Um, so I, I agree to, to a certain extent, uh, you know, I mean, w sharing the wealth solves a lot of problems. I do think that, you know, I do think it is the case that, um, that exclusionary zoning and NIMBYism is, these are real problems, and that um, I think that there is a conflict in, in certain very hot metropolitan areas where um, where liberalizing zoning laws are going to lead to construction that actually makes housing less affordable for the people who are currently there because it drives up demand for properties in that neighborhood. Um, so, But I think that sometimes can distract the left from the the fact that you know you can make zoning uh you can liberalize zoning you know in wealthy areas and in wealthy suburbs and that it actually you know markets aren't perfect but it is the case if you do dramatically increase the supply of a good that um in most conditions it will make it more affordable uh and so we need you know we need publicly funded social housing that is you know as as beautiful uh as it is in in vienna and uh berlin um we also could just use more private development as well um and it is fundamentally uh you know uh often racist classist um politics that are keeping that from happening hmm. yeah um i want to switch gears a bit to uh You've taken on the role, which I do not envy, of covering the Democratic debates 
for New York Magazine and you have very entertaining write-ups. Um, what is that process like for you? Uh, yeah, hell. <laughs> um, well, specifically just because they've been doing fucking two in a row each time and I, um, I just had just had the idea on the first debate so maybe you know this is like such a clown show there are like 10 of them like it would sort of be funny to kind of irreverently rank the 10 performances you know like we're doing power rankings for sports teams or something um and they liked that and then unfortunately it got a lot of traffic and now (laughs) so they wanted me to do it every night and the thing is to, to come up with something to say about all 10 of them um i'm just like up all night like two nights in a row uh, every time they do these things, um, and they're still not calling the field. I don't understand. Like Tom Steyer's going to be in the fucking debates in September, and it's a nightmare, and I want to get out of it. Um, <laughs> You're a victim of your own success here. Yeah. Well, I, the traffic's been going down, thank God. So um, hopefully they'll let me not do it. But uh, but yeah, that's the process. Yeah, and and I think uh, I mean, what, what role do you think these debates play right now? Um. Yeah, it's hard to say, right? Because, uh, I mean, it gives us something to talk about, but, um, but you know, Harris really exposing... I don't know that she necessarily uh, exposed that, that Biden's position on busing was that salient to that many people, but just the fact that he couldn't fend off an attack on a debate stage and that she was so um, uh, charismatic in, in prosecuting that yeah. attack. It's I very think. personally resonant. It was, yeah. You could watch that in one minute and like take something away from right. it. Right. I think that that lead, given the polling that we've seen that suggests that electability is such a primary concern for, for primary voters, um, I think that it's plausible that the the subsequent dip in Biden's numbers and, and uptick in Harris's was was a product of that debate exchange and was about oh I kind of maybe I want Harris to be in the debate stage with Trump and maybe I don't trust Biden to be able to come back when Trump goes after him because he's just kind of stammering there and not really effective um, but you know then like two weeks passed and the numbers went back to basically where they were um, and Biden you know seems to have his 33% um, pretty firm uh, through the process so far. Um, it is still early. I don't know exactly. It's hard to tell who is and is not. It's hard to tell who is not checked in that is going to check in later. It's hard to, hard to know that. From um, the candidate perspective or from, from, the, from like, primary the voters? voters yeah. like, like who is not following right now, who is going to start following. And But um, so, so far, you know, given that they've, I mean, they've, the fact that they've got you've got ten people up there each night and it's really hard and, and like Warren still hasn't debated uh, Biden they haven't been on the same stage um, uh, I don't think that they've made much of an impression yet and it's not clear whether they will uh, later in the process or not yeah I mean it's it's really hard when you see these exchanges or you watch an entire debate and at the last debate it seemed to me that Biden did a terrible job uh, he just was not very effective or memorable throughout. And the ways he was memorable were him kind of stammering and like having meltdowns on stage and just finished by saying, Joe, three, oh, three, three, oh. And it just all around like seems like a 
almost like a Rick Perry level performance. Um, but then he seems to be doing just fine in polls and it doesn't seem to be that much of a material effect. And, and the media coverage too, just did not seem to jive at all with my impression watching it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think he quite had a Rick Perry moment. I think the Joe 33030 was the closest, but it was at the end, and it was something, it wasn't like something any other candidate was going to respond to and say, wait, say that again, you know? <laughs> like, it wasn't it wasn't a Rick Perry or a Marco Rubio breakdown. Yeah. Um, I think that you need something that is, like, so visceral as that. I mean, basically, the, the Harris moment, but worse, or, you know, um, to well, really... Harris did take a hit from um, Tulsi Gabbard's going through her record as a prosecutor and it seems like her polling did drop after that right yeah though her numbers were already falling before the debate I, mm. she has not been able to get traction but but yeah i agree that it was not a good night for her um but see i don't think he completely melted down i think he was actually probably better at the second debate than he was at the first but that's not saying very much um but it you know i mean it is the the case that uh that he really seems to have lost a step, that he seems to be um, not altogether there. If you look at how he performed in 2012 against Paul Ryan, and you look at him now, I mean, the man has aged. I mean, and, and he's, you know, he suffered a lot of trauma in his life. He's suffered a lot of trauma in recent years with losing his son, and I think it's aged him. And it does seem like he's not running as ambitious a schedule as other candidates. It seems like they're they're kind of trying to minimize his exposure which is terrifying. Yeah. Um, but uh, he kept it together enough at the second debate that I, I, I don't know. Like, it's it's a lot can happen, and there's a lot of time, and that liability of, you know, is potentially cognitively declining is, is a big factor and, and could become salient at some point when ideally one of the candidates who's not going to win, you know, go does takes one for the team and does the, you know, thing that's going to increase your negatives, but also increase Biden's negatives and like actually frontally, you know, talk, talk about it and try to see if you can get Biden to accidentally confirm your allegation by stumbling in response. I um, mean, creating sort of an iconic moment like Christie did with Rubio uh, with the, you know, let's dispel with this fiction thing. Um, but where we're looking at right now, he's, his lead is very large in national polls and um, perhaps more significantly, like just like rock solid in South Carolina and across these Southern states um, with heavily African-American electorates where Sanders wiped out last time where, you know, they, they, the electorates appear to have um, a lot of loyalty to uh, the Democrats that they're familiar with. Um, And, Whereas there are closer races in New Hampshire and in Iowa, um, but delegates are going to be awarded proportionally. And if if Biden narrowly loses in Iowa and New Hampshire and then just rides throughout the South, like whooping everybody, getting twice as many delegates, he's going to win. Um, and so I think most people were assuming that his dominance in the South uh, was going to be mitigated by Booker or Harris catching fire and then they're going to share the black vote and then Biden's not going to just, you know, collect all those delegates. Um, but it's been extraordinary how little interest Booker has inspired. It's uh, just astounding, kind of, given his 
you know, conventional political gifts and um, his his standing within the party and his celebrity. Um, the guy like is, you know, in the national polls, I can't crack two percent barely. Um, and then Harris similarly has been immensely underwhelming. Uh, and if they don't eat into the the black vote and and and, and Warren and Sanders don't have a, a breakthrough, Bernie's doing a little bit better, or his his support is a little bit more diverse um, this time around. Uh, but but he's he's not like a major factor um, in South Carolina at this point. And if that remains the case, then I don't see how you stop Biden. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really astonishing and, and sad to me that I mean you've got Joe Biden and his record for just the country as a whole and uh, middle class Americans, poor Americans, um, and Black Americans in particular is just horrendous. You know, opposing busing. Uh, making it so you can't get out of uh, your student debt into bankruptcy, supporting crime bills that you know disproportionately affected Black Americans. Um, what else? Uh, repealing Glass-Steagall and supporting the war in Iraq. Like he's just been so bad on all these issues. Uh, whereas Bernie was getting arrested in civil rights protests in his youth and was there when Martin Luther King gave the "I Have a Dream" speech and like has spent his entire career fighting for. Um, black Americans and and so many other groups, and yet the support is just so skewed. Um, what, what do you attribute that to? Um, you know, Obama. Uh, you know, yeah. Uh, for eight years, the. You know, I mean, you know, if you try to imagine, I, I don't know, like what. Um, what a what socialists who maybe I don't know if you identified as a socialist but you weren't like really you're kind of not that into not that into politics I don't know and Bernie Sanders wins and then just to, just what a glow he would have his administration would would have for you just as far as like someone from a marginalized group um, you know a member of that marginalized group who was never supposed to be at the height of American power and then he brought you there um, except you know obviously the 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 pathos the suffering the the you know the the black experience in america you know is is um more deeply rooted and, and fraught and painful and obviously like inherent you don't choose to be black as you would choose to be a socialist so um you know obama obama's triumph really matters to african americans his election his ability to win an election um, you know, as a black candidate for the party of black people, um, it just matters. And the representation does matter. It matters in, in how people conceive of themselves and how, you know, the, the world that their children understand them to live in. And for eight years, every day, implicitly, Obama vouched for Joe Biden as a worthwhile president, you know, uh, as the one person, like, if my heart stops today... I want this guy to be president. So, you know, I mean, and there's a reason why Biden brings, says Obama's name at every opportunity. Um, that is basically, Biden's appeal is Obama, uh, plus, um, you know, the fact that he polls best against Trump right now by a, a pretty significant margin. Those polls in my understanding, are not predictive, but they are published and shown, and it is the case that he he beats Trump, and that's what Democrats care about the most. So you put those two things together, 
and just I, I don't think this appeal is that mysterious. Yeah. And what uh, what do you think about the rest of the candidates? Who who actually has a shot? Who should we be paying attention to? I mean, I think that it really looks like it is not any brilliant insight. Just that uh, the the race, to the extent that there is one, is is it's Biden, Bernie, Warren, Harris, and and Buttigieg. Uh, that could change. Maybe maybe someone else sneaks in, but um, but I think after that, like. I think there's Beto at like maybe four or five percent, or four percent. I mean, it, it it doesn't seem like it's actually. We've got these incredibly um, permissive debate rules that are making it look like this huge, wide open race. But like, it, it's crazy. We've got these debate stages where like five candidates have like point five percent in the polls. Like, the, it um, they really should do a kitty table and undercard in the real contenders debate. Um, because it really right now looks like a five-person race. Yeah. Yeah, and and you um you've written about uh, Bernie's tying himself to this Democratic Socialist um, label, and you mentioned it earlier. So wh- why do you think that's a bad idea? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think it's a testament to Bernie's political skill that that he has, you know, loudly and proudly identified as a socialist, uh, while um, occupying a position of national prominence in American politics. And for for three years now, and he still beats Trump in polls and, and maybe polls second best um, against Trump to Biden. Um, but at the same time, I mean, you know, my my take is just that you know that there is. There is a reason that Republicans uh, have described every proposal to increase redistribution as socialism. Um, that if you look at polls of what Bernie's supports and goes down his economic agenda, uh, every item polls much better than the phrase than the word socialism. Mm. Right? There is some movement. Um, Eighteen to twenty-four year olds in, in one recent poll have a more favorable opinion of socialism uh, than capitalism, but that reverses at 25. Um, and, you know, among Americans over 50, it's extremely negative. Um, so so the question is, you know, what, what, what is gained by, by coding your policies and implicitly, you know, um, on some level, exaggerating the radicalism of what you're trying to do. You know, universal health care, job guarantee, uh, free college. These are not radical ideas, as Bernie will suggest in, in other contexts. And these are actually ideas that are very deeply rooted in American liberalism. You know, he, in his speech on democratic socialism, he basically cast his definition of socialism as the fulfillment of Franklin Roosevelt's economic bill of rights you know from 75 years ago so so it seems to me that if you want to say hey I, I want to um, fulfill uh, the promise that one of America's most popular presidents made uh, to these people three quarters of a century ago um, that's how like normal and like deeply rooted like almost conservative my vision is um that that's probably more um 
politically advantageous than saying that I want to implement this thing that is, you know, an adjective and then a word that uh, a significant portion of the American electorate associates with uh, the Soviet Union, with authoritarianism, and with uh, the power that they were taught to view as their enemy and a threat to their lives during their childhood. Um, so that's, and then then layered on top of that, the, the other thing is I think that just in the specific context of the Democratic primary, as we've been talking about, you know, a hefty majority of Democratic voters say the number one priority for them is they prefer a candidate who gives them the best chance to beat Trump over one that most shares their views. Mm. If you're trying to convince the Democratic electorate that, you know, contrary to what the corporate media is telling you, I'm actually the most electable candidate, um, identifying as a socialist uh, probably isn't the best way to do that. Yeah. Um, you know, so on the flip side, what what you are doing is, you know, it's a converse. Like you are, I I, I think that you potentially, um, uh, you make universal health care maybe sound more radical if you and everybody else starts describing that as socialism as like a transition in the entire economic system rather than you know a very common policy. Um, but conversely, you do mainstream socialism, you know, because you leverage the popularity of the goal of universal health care, and I think that's why. Um, you know, uh, DSA wants candidates to identify as socialists, and why Jacobin is 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 very enthusiastic about it because it does it does work um, for the project of mainstreaming socialism. My view: I'm very sympathetic to arguments for you know uh, democratic ownership, um, democratizing ownership of, of passive income, like I was talking about before, and, and, and empowering workers in their workplaces, and the idea that you know a a strong, vibrant, and militant trade union movement is, is probably going to be a prerequisite for creating a humane society in the 21st century. Um, but I also, I just don't think that um, that, that, that the, the battle that we're currently fighting is the, the battle for, uh, you know, um, seizing the means of production. Like, I, I don't think that's where we're at. I think um, a lot of democratic socialists themselves argue that, that that they see you know class struggle social democracy as as a necessary stepping point on the path to socialism and um, to me maybe the one place where where I may be most at odds with with, with portions of the left is that I, I I do think as I was saying earlier that this, the stakes of whether uh, the Democratic Party the Republican Party have power today even the the right wing of the Democratic Party are extremely high. Um, you know, whether you have a, a proto-authoritarian, you know, fascistic, not not fascist, but increasingly, increasingly racist and increasingly um, authoritarian party controlling the government, or you know, a a left neoliberal one has huge consequences for lots of ordinary people and. And achieving the latter is eminently within our power, you know. And so, I'm ameliorist in that that sense. Like, I, if we, if we have a high probability of saving ten thousand lives by by doing this thing, um, but we are going to still be stuck with a fundamentally unjust, you know, economic order and a bunch of other problems. And and you know, I mean, it's still worth it. It's still worth it to save 
save, save those lives to mitigate suffering uh, where we can. And so, so that, that, that's, that's what informs my thinking about, uh, about Bernie's branding there. But again, as I said to begin with, um, you know, he's, he's, personally, he has been able to make it work. He's a gifted enough politician that there's, you know, he's still viable as a presidential candidate while uh, identifying that way. I just don't think he's maximizing his probability of winning the Democratic primary um, or the general election by doing so. Yeah, I mean, I think he also just in this position where he's so consistent throughout his career and he's called himself a socialist for decades. So if we were to like flip on that now, that could have like a greater impact. Yeah, right? no, I mean, I think that's the, that's the strongest argument against. I think that, but I think there's a, there's arguably a middle ground between um, between formally disavowing the ideology and formally defending it. There's also, uh, or giving speeches about it and, and talking about it, uh, but I think there's also, you know, potentially an off-ramp of, you know, nothing about my beliefs have changed, but the, the you know, corporate media wants to have this argument about labels and Stalin and, you know, it's just we can't have a normal conversation. So, you know, call it whatever you want. I'm a New Deal liberal. I'm whatever you want me to be. I want to talk about the issues. I want to talk about my positions. I don't want to talk about abstractions, you know. Yeah. Um, and when you hear them talking about socialism, uh, that's them telling you that they don't want to talk about Medicare for all. They don't want to talk about what I actually concretely want to do. They want to distract you with whatever. I think there's ways to, to finesse it. But, um, but you know, I don't know if, if, if uh, but, but what do I know? I, I have not won uh, an election, and, and Bernie has uh, won many, so. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think uh, labels have an unfortunate way of getting people to shut down. Uh, my, my dad is very sympathetic to Medicare for all and, and other, you know, increased taxes on the wealthy, but he would never consider himself a socialist or even really be open to the idea. Yeah. Um, so I think we kind of go for the specific policies and win people over on that yeah. and, you know, going back to identity, not asking them to fundamentally yeah. change who they identify as. I mean, effective communication is, you know, I, I mean, so many just on Twitter every day, I'm always struck by like how many arguments are fundamentally about what the definition of a word should be and what we should agree on. Um, and so, you know, just when you use words you need to think about how what images does that bring to mind in different subjectivities and different consciousnesses you know when you say socialism what do people they're you know i i don't think that the uh, a single chapter of dsa that when you say that word every member has the exact same picture in their head of, of what is being uh, said what, what is being conveyed by that so you, you go to the american public writ large uh, you know to people who have never read Marx or taken a political theory course or whatever, you know, who knows what that, that means to them. Um, uh, you can go to the doctor and um, the next time that your daughter is sick, you don't have to worry about whether the hospital is in network or what your bill is going to be because we are going to have this thing that they have in Canada just up north where the government assumes responsibility for that just like it assumes responsibility for the public schools. Just like you, when you take your daughter to kindergarten, you don't have to worry that they're going to charge you $10,000 because she vomited on the rug or something. Like, we're going to have that for hospitals, all right? I think that, that your chances of getting the image that you're trying to convey into someone else's head, much higher probability there when you're getting concrete than when you're talking about abstractions. So, yeah. Yeah. 
I, I totally agree. Um, I, I want to wrap up by talking a little bit about some like meta questions about your writing and um, bias in, in journalism. Um, so I guess just to start, like, how would you describe your job? Like, are you a journalist, an opinion journalist? You write with a very clear perspective, which yeah. I appreciate. Um, I'm a content creator. <laughs> I guess I am too. Yeah. Um, I'm a hot take artist. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a blogger. I'm a columnist. Uh, I, I, you know, do some interviews. I'm trying to vague intentions to do a bit more reporting. Um, but uh, yeah, for the most part, I'm a political analyst uh, and and commentator. I, mean, I think that some of the stuff I do is in maybe more the category of opinion than I'm really sort of advocating a specific. Uh, either political strategy or moral position or, or way of uh, seeing things. And sometimes I am more in pundit horse race mode where I'm trying to, um, from a detached perspective, a disinterested perspective, try to give readers my sense of uh, what the landscape is in a given moment. Um, but uh, but I try to make my biases clear um, to the readers, at least the regular ones, um, uh, and yeah, I just think it's it's important to acknowledge. I think it's important to to know and ideally have your readers know when both what know what uh, what filter um, should I, I okay. so. to know and have your readers know you know what what filter you're taking in. Uh, you're potentially picking facts from because there are going to be have your readers know what is a factual assertion and what is a statement of opinion and then separately know enough about where you're coming from to have a sense of uh, what biases might inform which facts are making it in to the copy I think if, if you can have that level of transparency with your reader then um, that, then I think that, that there's nothing um, wrong with having uh, having a perspective and, and having a very um, firm uh, and partisan uh, perspective on on events. Yeah, as I've gotten more into writing, I've been thinking about this a lot because I've had friends describe it as oh, it's good. It's just like you know, very biased, like obviously. And I find that to be like kind of strange. I, I don't really write on you know explicit political issues too too often, but. To me, it seems like avoid uh, trying to avoid bias is is part of what got us into this mess in the first place, right? Where it's like you're reporting on like Trump and Hillary, and there's this false equivalency that has been discussed to death of like all the litany of Trump scandals versus like Hillary's emails, right? Or you know the climate change debate. You've got like all of climate scientists versus like uh, a section of deniers who are funded by you know right wing billionaires who made their money from fossil fuels. Um, and so I guess the way I kind of see it is like whenever you make a specific claim, it should be very backed up. You should cite your source and have it be accessible to the reader. And whenever there's kind of conflicts of uh, truth claims or conflicts around a truth claim, you should like do your best to come to a conclusion on it that is well-informed and then uh, yeah, be, a, be upfront about what position or what values you, you hold and like how that leads to your analysis. Um, I feel like that's all you can really expect from somebody. Yeah, I, I think that... Obviously, there is the, like you were saying, the the nefarious idea uh, of objectivity, 
um, which one just presumes that it is, you know, possible to have a view from nowhere and also smuggles in a bunch of stuff that's not recognized as ideology, such as, you know, I think in both 2012 and 2016, you have ostensibly objective moderators framing questions about the, the national debt in ways that are, are very tendentious. Um, and then you have also just the, the kind of objectivity that arises from this sort of increasingly archaic business model uh, of mid-century newspapers where you want to sell newspapers to both Republican and Democratic households. Um, and so you are going to try to give a view from nowhere where wherever your reader is coming from, um, you know, they can view this as a credible and shared um, shared source of information, which, you know, has its utility in terms of, like, it is in some ways good for maybe the, the, the polity to have a shared set of facts and, and shared set of sources and arbiters of of truth, but it comes with a lot of problems because in order to maintain uh, that mutual trust, you need to fudge. You you can't acknowledge if it is the case fundamentally that one faction uh, in American politics insists on ignoring factual reality on this and this and this and, and the other doesn't. Um, the moment you acknowledge that, you have a problem. So that kind of bias is, is you know, dumb and, and, and bad and, and, and the left has done I think a a good job uh, and I, I've tried to do a lot of my writing especially early writing has been focused on you know trying to expose when it is that these sorts of outlets are laundering often you know non-recognized ideology as objective assertions um, I do think I do think that being aware of one's own bias, separate from that, is a worthwhile um, thing and trying to correct for it as far as, you know, just fundamentally we know from, you know, social psychology and, and other things that, you know, we all are subject to confirmation bias. We all have identity protective cognition. Um, we will fundamentally, once we have an identity and, and, and have beliefs, we will unconsciously um, screen new information for, uh, you know, the points that reinforce and, and validate who we believe ourselves to be and what we believe about the world uh, and ignore what we don't. And I think that, you know, we can recognize in our political adversaries how much, how much uh, evil and intellectual bankruptcy comes from that. And, um, you know, we're not, a, we're not totally above it. And outside of it, and I have you know changed my mind about things in my life, and and seen things differently after, and so you know I do try to to some extent try to be conscious of um, if there is ambiguity about something, you know trying to be conscious of well what what, what if I want that to be true, if it would be very convenient to my beliefs to believe my ideology to believe that this is the case. Uh, then I, I do want to try to subject it to a little bit more scrutiny. Um, if this is something that, uh, if I accepted this this fact, this study, this whatever, this poll, um, and uh, you know tweeted that I accepted it, um, would it potentially fill my mentions with um, disappointed friends? Um, and uh, do I do I want to? 
be compromised by, you know, that impulse to protect my place and, you know, my tribe, my, but, 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 you know, really, you know, my social circle where I do really value these bonds and I value this shared political commitment. Um, but I don't want it to compromise my ability to, um, you know, say what I think is true. And so I, I try to, when I have the wherewithal to deal with Twitter backlash, to, to try to make a point of, of saying those things. Um, if I recognize that that reticence, um, so I think that that is there is bias is a useful concept to keep in mind, um, and I'm 100% sure that my work is biased. Uh, just trying to be more transparent and, um, and and more factual and as as truthful as I uh, as I can be. Yeah, I I. I... The bias that I see in your work is that you seem to genuinely care about people <laughs> around the world. And it, I'm just reminded of the New York Times headline for Bernie Sanders' campaign for uh, the mayor of Burlington, which is like, uh, Burlington mayor candidate launches campaign with bias towards poor. Which <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> is just incredible. <laughs> yeah. And that might have been a knowing winking. Uh, I don't know, maybe you had a little sort of leftist uh, headline writer there doing a little satire. I don't know. Yeah. But... Um... But, but you might maybe, be giving too much not. credit. Yeah. <laughs> what's the what's the hottest take you've had? What's gotten the most backlash? Well, that socialism one I did earlier didn't get like huge backlash, but it's not you know the most popular. The, the one that Bernie should Just not. Bernie, yeah. Claim. Yeah. Um, so that that that's one. Uh, I also I think that you know. Um, I, I take the polling that that shows that. Uh, that that a Medicare for anyone who wants a public option thing polls better than Medicare for all, and that there is discomfort about uh, abolishing private insurance. I take that more seriously than than some on the left. I I don't know how serious they take. I think that you know framing effects. There are different ways of putting it. Where where the polling, uh, you know. We drastically have, changes like 20 point swings right based on how the question is right asked i mean if you emphasize that we're going to create a situation where all doctors are in network and you're not going to lose your doctors and that this is the only way that we can give you stability with your health care providers um that you know maintaining private insurance leaves the power of, of who what doctors you get to see in your employer's hands or uh etc um you know i think that there are potentially ways to message it that that make it work um but given the fact that um, that you just, you know, that the median Democratic senator, forget about the median senator, period, does not support Medicare for all, the hospital industry, the doctor lobby, um, uh, in addition to the pharmaceutical companies and insurance, um, which the left is very, Sanders anyway, is very comfortable taking on drug companies, insurance companies, because they're, they're not that sympathetic. But doctors and hospitals are. Mm. And if people's doctors are going to be telling them, which many of them are, you know, the, the physicians groups oppose this because they, they recognize that it's a step towards bringing American doctor salaries in line with other countries. Um, if, if people's doctors are telling them, you know, what's going on in Washington, they're doing something terrible that's going to be bad for your health care, people are going to trust their doctors over... And they oppose public option too. Um, I should should make very clear. But the American Medical Association has been a very conservatizing force in a lot yeah. of yeah. Yeah, I mean, debates. they're a major reason why we don't already have it. Um, 
in terms of the fight over uh, in the, the 40s. Um, but so given all that, given the right-wing media infrastructure, the, the mainstream media, um, some more you know, center-right leanings often on many issues, um, given all of these obstacles, can you do it if the policy idea that you're proposing just isn't 100% majoritarian, just like you absolutely have the popular, well, yeah, you have all these other things opposed to you, you have even segments of organized labor opposed to you, but it's just such a, such a fucking popular idea that you're going to be able to bring pressure to bear when I see, you know, polls that, that show you at 70-something percent with a public option, and then you're, you know, when, when you define Medicare for all as a single-payer thing that abolishes insurance, you're at somewhere from 40 to like 54 or something. Yeah. Um, I think it's just, it's, it's something that I take seriously. I don't know. I don't know that it has any implication for what the left does in this current moment, given that uh, pushing for Medicare for all um, militantly has resulted in a politics in which uh, Joe Biden is running on a, a, um, a public option that's available in in all markets, I believe, and, and Kamala Harris is running on a slow-motion single-payer plan, um, and Pete Buttigieg is, is running on, I, I believe, a, a plan that immediately um, enrolls all newborns uh, and uninsured in a public plan um, and establishes a robust public option. Um, I think things are going well. Uh, so, but, but I do take the, that polling seriously, and, uh, and some on the left don't. Yeah, and one, one response I've seen is that uh, insurance companies and the AMA and, and all these like industry groups are already coming like, out against even like a public option or the yeah. more moderate proposals. So it's kind of like you might as well go for the whole hog if they're just going to fight you tooth and nail anyway. Right. I, I just think that if and, and that might be the case, it's just like what, um, you know, sitting down with Amy Klobuchar, John Tester, Joe Manchin, if you can give them polling that shows like this is at 70 percent your district you know mm. voters i think it might be easier to beat the lobby than if, if if you don't even have the polls yeah um then i think it's going to be tough but then again once the fight starts maybe they'll be able to make it you know obamacare uh um was was i believe like under 40 percent when it was passed you know by the time after fox news spends every night uh, beating the drum on on this, and, and the American Medical Association and the hospitals start airing their advertisements. Maybe it's possible that whatever you do, it ends up toxic. And so maybe it is the case uh, that either way, you're not going to be able to get the polls, uh, and either way, you're going to be asking Democrats to you know do what's right at the risk of potentially losing their seats, get a chance to make history uh, rather than just uh, you know sit and try to beat back. I, anyway, I see the argument. I'm not not totally sold on it. I just think, um, yeah, I, I just think sometimes that the the counter argument is not fully engaged with, but is just derided as you know neoliberal propaganda, and that there's also sometimes this like tension in, in rhetoric about Medicare for all, where there's the assertion that like you know every other nation has this, um, and then also only the only thing that is Medicare for all is free at the point of service single-payer where uh, duplicative insurance is abolished, which is just not something that every nation has. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, just sometimes I think the rhetoric gets a little um, whatever. But, uh, but uh, yeah, I don't have really a firm position. I just I think that, that, that the issues need to be debated given the failure of single-payer in Colorado and Vermont, given, 
given how difficult this fight is, I think that um, however however the movement is positioning publicly, internally, there should be uh, more debate and thought about exactly how to best how how to best position uh, position ourselves for success. But yeah, there's this tricky thing where a lot on the left will attribute the unpopularity or why something good that they support hasn't happened to you know the media being opposed to it, to like all these vested interests fighting it. And it's like not that that's a wrong analysis, but those things aren't going away. Right. Anytime I mean, if soon. you have a strategy to beat them, then great. But, yeah. but if you if you don't, then yeah, uh, you know. Correctly attributing the source of the problem does not solve or obviate the problem. Right. Yeah. Well, cool. Um, Eric, I've really enjoyed reading your work uh, and especially reading it to prepare for this. Is there anything that you'd like to point listeners to? Anything you'd like to plug? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, Obviously, your work okay, in New York Magazine. Got some, uh, yeah, I mean, definitely give, um, give my employer money, pay for my content. Uh, the, the ad model is dying. <laughs> um, my friends are losing their jobs. Uh, and uh, yeah, that money probably could, uh, you know, uh, support, uh, you know, malnourished children somewhere else, but give it to the billionaire who owns my my magazine please um uh i don't think she's actually a billionaire they're, they're, they're actually billionaires but they're you know i mean they're wealthy but and they're, they're doing a good thing keeping this magazine alive um but so yeah so i think it's five dollars a month uh for the digital subscription i think it's a little bit more and you get the the magazine it's a really good magazine it's a good product that new york books out i um i'm very lucky to actually be employed by a publication that i uh you know genuinely admire which is not something that 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 all, all journalists uh, or, you know, especially left-wing ones maybe um, have the, the privilege of doing. So, um, yeah, my, my Twitter handle is just my name, uh, Eric Levitz, at Eric Levitz. And, um, yeah, uh, nymag.com, Intelligencer uh, is the political vertical. Cool. Eric, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been The Most Interesting People I Know. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. I don't know why this matters, but every other podcast I listen to asks people to do this. Music is by me. Podcast design is by Jacob Abrowitz. I hope you enjoyed the show.